Hey there, Pastor Bob here. Welcome to Season 2 of the Underground Sessions Podcast, where we always have courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. We're talking about the issues you care about and training followers of Christ to think deeply about cultural engagement. As a reminder, the views expressed by guests may not reflect the views of Millington Baptist Church. Let's dive into our latest conversation. Welcome to the Underground Sessions podcast. I'm your host, as always, Bob Erbig. Uh, Underground Session podcast, we always have conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. And so today we're going to be talking about a very pertinent cultural issue that is on everybody's mind, and that is the topic of COVID. COVID. So in March 2020, everything changed. I remember seeing an article from The Atlantic saying, uh, the beginning of March, that we should cancel everything because of this mysterious virus that was coming in. March 8th, we had a normal church service, and then the next week, the world changed. Churches shut down and went remote. And now, after a fairly quiet summer, at least here in New Jersey, cases are back on the rise. In fact, here in New Jersey today, we had over 3,000 cases. Hospitalizations are up to 1,800. Governor Murphy's talking about new restrictions. There's a vaccine on the horizon. People are debating masks. And so there's a whole lot of issues surrounding this topic. And it is something that we should think about and uh, think, how do we respond to this? So I am joined today by Dr. Raymond Zakari, and uh, he is a nurse practitioner in Manhattan, Uh, been a friend of mine for a while, and so I'm pleased to have him on here. Let me give you just a little bit of his background. Uh, Dr. Raymond Zakari is a triple board certified nurse practitioner in adolescent health, family practice, and psychiatric mental health. He's trained in sex therapy and has a diverse clinical background ranging from critical care to mental health. Now, most pertinently, over the years, he's been at the bedside with patients infected with MERS, SARS, and H1N1, and this season, he has swabbed over 500 patients and counting for COVID-19. In 2009, he founded Metro Medical Direct, a concierge web uh, service for enhanced medical and psychiatric house calls which is a private practice in Manhattan. He was a former Air Force officer and deployed to Iraq in 2006 in the role of an emergency room nurse. He's published in peer-reviewed journals and presented a national, at national and regional conferences on a range of topics from critical care health to mental health. And this year he published the Psychiatric Mental Health Nurse Practitioner Certification Review Manual. Uh, so I'm going to have to pick that up and go read it. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. Good. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have this and uh, just to get to chat with you and especially talk about this, uh, this really important topic. So why don't we just launch in, where do you see us being at right now with COVID and what's going on in the country? So we are still in the midst of a pandemic, but I think we have a lot more context now than we did at one time. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, you know, in March, February, we had no idea what it was we were trying to diagnose. What we had was a cluster of symptoms that we then called a syndrome, and we didn't really know what we were looking for. So we didn't have a test to find it. So in that short amount of time from say March till now, we have devised a test to test for something that is newly discovered and hit the ground in terms of uh, therapeutics. And we're amazingly on the horizon of debuting a vaccine for a coronavirus, which we've never had before. So technologically- pretty amazing. We'll just pause and say that's actually pretty amazing. Like people- It's amazing to have done so much so quickly. 
Uh, so that astounds me because vaccines have a ton of bureaucratic hurdles to get through. Therapeutics have a ton of bureaucratic hurdles to get through, to even come to market, to even have a clinical trial, to even do the trial on such a grand scale in a short amount of time. All of that is remarkable. I mean, I feel like the uh, resources have really been leveraged. Uh, even how we conceptualize treating uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19, which is a coronavirus, um, it, we've learned so much about it, but yet there's still a lot that is unknown. Right. Uh, but we are You're still probably saying that it's a novel coronavirus, right? It's not, well, it's novel because we've never known of COVID-19 before, right? <laughs> right. It's not right. anytime you discover something new, it's novel. Um, but, you know, it's still novel in that we don't know what long-term implications are, if any, related to this. Um, a lot of case reports, uh, you know, I say that relatively speaking, case reports are um, few, but a lot because everything seems new about the disease, are being reported in terms of late effects of viral infection. Uh, we're not quite sure if it's uh, the virus itself that's lingering. We're not sure if it's a prolonged immune response. We're not sure if it's a underlying uh, condition that's manifesting in different ways. So it's novel in that we don't exactly have answers to all those questions in large enough scale to make general recommendations. Right. So, I mean, you can only have those large enough, you, you, can, you can only make those recommendations after a certain period of time, right? I mean, you need, you need time you to study. You can after a period of time and you need to have enough people with enough similar factors so that you right. can say these people have it. Uh, we don't have that yet. Right. Uh, People with the long-term effects are not necessarily clustering around a particular, um, you know, a particular brand. In other words, we can't say that it's people over 70 or kids under five or mm -hmm. pregnant women or, you know, uh, people that smoke, don't smoke, vape, don't vape. We're not, we're not able to do that yet. Right. And, and not everybody that has it is having as many lingering effects or any lingering effects. Uh, well, actually, it's interesting you say that. So the majority of people that are testing positive, when you hear these high infection rates, what needs to be kept in mind is infection means a qualitative test was done and picked up as findings of virus in you. It does not mean you're actually sick. In fact, the majority mm -hmm. of people that are infected are not sick and have no symptoms. Because there's been such a push to get that denominator, to get people tested, what you have are people, some people are required to be tested every week as a factor of their job. Some people are saying they're tested mm -hmm. every three days. Some people are, you know, tested every time they change locations, uh, before every medical procedure, before you're admitted right. to the hospital. And all this testing is going on. So you hear these very high infection rates, but they don't know that they have it. They're only being tested for an administrative reason, but they have no symptoms of it. And the reason we're doing that is because it's so highly transmissible. We believe, we believe that you can spread it without being symptomatic. Right. That's what we believe. We've never tested people for viruses without symptoms before. So this will be an interesting flu season because what we've done in the beginning, meaning March, when we did this, um, we were still in the middle of the flu season. And because we were worried about swabs and supplies, we started, we initially told people, if you have what we called flu-like symptoms of any kind, anything from mm -hmm. a runny nose, sore throat, headache, body aches, fever, chills, night sweats, any of that, if you've had any of that, we told people first, swab for the flu. Then do what we call the respiratory viral panel, which tests for like, you know, 12 different common viruses. Then, and only then, if those two were negative, should you swab for COVID-19. 
the test we just invented. Well, what happened was that was now three swabs before we got to the answer and everyone was panicking over a lack of resources. So then literally weeks into March, I said, stop all this. Don't test for anything except COVID-19. So now we weren't testing people for flu or the other 12 contagious viruses that can also be spread. Uh, normally we would isolate people for influenza because it's contagious, at least we would in the hospital. We would say stay home or you know, private room and gown and gloves and mask and all that. But we stopped testing people for that. So if you did not come up positive for COVID-19, you weren't getting isolated. And so you would continue. So I'm not sure how much flu has spread as a result of us not testing for it and not isolating for it the way we normally do. And then to further compound this or to make it more interesting, now what we have done is we have embedded, uh, at least at some hospitals and some testing facilities, where when you swab for the COVID virus, you're at the same time swabbing for influenza but it's only one swab. It's not like three swabs up the nose each time. It's one swab and the test is being run for influenza and COVID, which is nice because now we can finally tease out, do you have flu or do you have COVID? And it kind of matters. Mm. That's really interesting. I know when I, I actually, uh, my wife and I had it back in, in, um, in, uh, in April. And when I went and got the test, they actually did my throat, not my nose. So I haven't experienced the sticking it all the way up into your like sinus cavity to, uh, to see whether you have it or not. <laughs> so that's another interesting thing. There are several ways right now to test. There is the anterior nasal swab, which is they're swabbing the front of your nose. There's the nasopharyngeal swab, which they go like the flu test and go beyond the front of your nose. There is a saliva spit test where you spit a teaspoon worth of saliva that they test for. All of those are ways to test. The problem with that is they all have varying degrees of what we call false negatives. Mm -hmm. So meaning it tells you you're negative, but really you are positive. That's what a false negative is. And oh, the other thing that we should keep in mind is in terms of identifying infection rates, we also started counting in the beginning anyone with an antibody test as an infection. And we weren't distinguishing long-term antibody formation versus short-term antibody formation. And I'm not sure that the reporting on that is completely clear just yet. And we also don't know what to do with antibody test results other than to say, mm -hmm. you've had it, you may be a donor so that we can offer convalescent plasma as a therapeutic. But we don't necessarily take that at face value when you come into the hospital. If you tell me you had an antibody test and you can prove it to me, we're still gonna nasal swab you because we don't know if people can become infected again. Mm, interesting. And if you do come up positive on that second nasal swab, you get counted as another infection. So now you are part of the two infections. Interesting. So that, that all complicates the actual infection rates, right? It does. Uh, so maybe, maybe a question for people that are listening today is what, what, is, what does the rise, like we're seeing, we're, talking, we're hearing about the rise in infection across the country. What does the rise in infection rate actually mean for the average person? Should they be afraid? Should they be concerned? What are some practical implications of so, that? Yeah. So there is a rise in infection rate because now we have more ability to test. So you're having rises in infection because you have the ability to capture it. Keep in mind, we're not testing everybody and uh, we likely never will for anything like that. But mm -hmm. what I'm saying is in the beginning, the infection rate was limited partly because of the lack of resources and ability to test so many people. We were only testing high risk people initially. And now we have more ubiquitous testing. So increased infection rate could be due to increased testing. The other interesting thing is we don't have a way to tease out, say you were infected uh, November 1st and you finish 10 days of quarantine and you have no symptoms 
And so you're returning to circulation. Well, suppose you work somewhere that says you need to be tested again. So you go into their employee health and you get swabbed again and you're still positive. You get counted as a second infection, even though you are still dealing with the first one. We believe that people can remain positive for six to 12 weeks post clearing symptoms, even if they've had active disease or no active disease. So that's complicating the infection rate. There are people getting tested out of solidarity. My friend did, I'm gonna do it, we should all go together. And that's all great. Unfortunately, there's no way to tag who is still infected from who is newly infected. Mm. So infection rates need to be taken, um, realize it's a statistical interpretation and statistics can be tortured to yield Mm. desirable data. So, and, and you, we hear about so many different, like, like there's a, a transmission rate, there's a mortality rate, there's a survival rate, a death rate. Like, how, how do you parse all those things out and make sense so of those I for the layperson? Yeah, I sent you a link. The uh, CDC actually has like a fundamentals of epidemiology course available online. That's free. I really? also, yeah, it's free and you can take it. It's six modules and you can really dig into it. Uh, just and then keep, everybody will be an expert right after they take well, it. Well, they won't be an expert any more than their constitutional experts on Facebook. Every time there's a crisis, everyone's a legal scholar, <laughs> everyone's a doctor, everyone's a whatever. And I should also say, uh, let's not overvalue our experts because we have expertise and people stepping outside their lane. We have the epidemiologist, the virologist, the public health expert, the immunologist. Right, the immunologist. And so we have to be careful as to what kind of expertise and are they staying in their lane. A lot of what is said about public health is based on statistical modeling and the model is only as good as the data that goes into it. And you can artificially weight things to a degree based on hypothesis, based on something you may have read in the literature. We don't know that the literature is uh, being interpreted properly. So just realize what you're hearing is statistical models leading to predictions. So that's what we had. That's how come in the beginning when this came out, we did worst case scenario model and said, oh my goodness, 2 million deaths. Well, that was worst case scenario if we did nothing, right? But, and then they said, well, let's do these things and these things. Well, we don't exactly know how to weight the benefit of say mask wearing, isolation, lockdowns, uh, frequency of testing. We don't really know how to weight that, but we're, we're learning and the way we're learning is we see what these numbers do over time. Suffice it to say, mortality rate and survival rate are not the same thing. Sounds like they should be, but they're not. Uh, infection, transmission rate, uh, you have uh, case fatality rate, you have infection fatality rate. Those are all different numbers. Those are all different expressions of something. So it's really important that when you hear numbers reported, the media needs to give you a sensational headline in order for you to listen to it because we need to inspire fear so that you sit there and watch. The infection fatality rate is really the number we should be concerned with because it looks at the total number of people infected, which we will not know, but that's a better predictor of how likely are you to die of COVID. Another thing that needs to be considered is in what demographic and in what setting are people actually uh, experiencing the mortality due to COVID. Is it people with underlying conditions? Is it people over a certain age? Is it people with no underlying conditions? Are they smokers? Are they vapors? Have they traveled? Do they have a multi-generational household, which was a major factor in Italy? Those are major factors that need to be considered to actually make sense of what the number means. So for example, 
our New York mortality rate is quite high. The problem is the reason it's high is because early on, we were panicked that we would be overrun in the hospital. So in order to clear out the hospital, our governor thought he was doing a good thing by mandating that nursing homes are able to take COVID patients. Turns out it was like putting a match in a box of kindling because our mortality rate in the nursing home soared, which is what affects our bad number now. You can't take it back once a death happens. So our number is gonna be quite high. We're not doing that now, but that number caused a high mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yield of death. And so it's interesting now because you have 50 states handling it 50 different ways. And that sounds like a bad idea, but it's actually a really good idea. And the reason it's a good idea is because you want to see what's working in different areas and then reproduce what works, especially when you don't know what we're dealing with. We want a lot of brain power and a lot of good public health policy working on this. Hindsight is 2020. But in reality, what we realize is there is a high risk population. Mm -hmm. And who are they? They're the elderly. Right over mid 70s and above. And now they're even thinking it may not just be elderly, it has to have pre-existing or comorbid conditions, specifically heart disease, uh, diabetes, lung disease like pneumonia, COPD, asthma, emphysema, things like that. Who else? Immune trans, um, organ transplant patients, people that are immunosuppressed taking immunosuppressants, medications that suppress the immune system, people that are on chronic steroid use, mm -hmm. uh, people that are uncontrolled in their diabetes, people that are morbidly obese. Those are the people that are dying from the coronavirus. So that should help people figure out what is their risk? How should they behave? Right. Well, those are, those are good. So in, in that sense, like when we talk about infections, would you say that just the fact that infections are rising, is that necessarily a bad thing? It could be, it's, it's bad in the theoretical sense. And that is, you know, what if you die of it, right? That's where it's bad. You never quite know if you're the person who's going to be. You don't know if you're going to be the right? one or you're going to expose someone that is. So that's why it's a bad thing. But in the grand scheme of things, it's actually not a bad thing. If the infection rate is that high, but the death stays low, that means the mortality rate of the disease is nowhere near what we thought it was. So now we're thinking it's probably around a half to 1%. And some people say that's even overestimated. I've even seen people estimate it up to 2.5%. That's quite high. Flu is about anywhere from 0.1 to 0.4%. Some epidemiologists and statisticians are talking about that if we take this uh, more bird's eye view and we really take into account the uh, total number of infections and the rate of death, that this number later on probably will come down to about 0 0.2, 0 0.3 or something on par, a little less than the flu. Again, it's a moving target and we don't know for sure. And when it's your family member, it's, it's horrible. Right. Absolutely. And I think the other factor is too, there's, there's people that probably had this disease that never got tested. I, I know several people that most likely had it and didn't get tested. So they're not counted in these infections. So it's really hard to get a sense on how many people were actually and truly infected by this thing. That's exactly right, because they may not continue to shed uh, virus through their nose once they've completely convalesced. They may, they may not. We don't know. Uh, and the other side of it is, you know, the way we're going to find out what that total number is, is when we do antibody testing. But right now, in the midst of the pandemic, um, people don't know what to do with the data. So you have antibodies, means you've been exposed. That's good for academic purposes. Normally, we would tell you that means you're immune. Right. Because if you think about how a vaccine works, what does it do? It irritates you enough, your immune system, that you make antibodies. And we're going to say that antibody is conferring immunity. 
I'll give you an example. In the old days, before the chickenpox vaccine was invented, we would have chickenpox parties and kids would go hug each other to get chickenpox so that they could get it while they're younger and now they have immunity. Well, since that, we've come along with the varicella vaccine. And so we don't have chickenpox parties anymore because people actually died of chickenpox. And so I now, remember having chickenpox. People, yeah. So now we tell people you've got the vaccine, you have immunity, go forth and, and prosper. Uh, we same with MMR. So it's interesting. We give people three MMR vaccines when they're children, right? We say, okay, you're immune. Now, if you uh, say, don't go to college or don't go to the military, you'll probably never be tested again for MMR. Do you have a titer or not? Because I went into healthcare and the military, I got tested a lot for MMR titers. And as an adult, turns out I wasn't immune. What do you mean? So I could have caught it? Well, yeah, because my titer came back, um, you know, not zero converted. So I got the booster again. And again, because every time I'd get tested, it would say, no, you're not uh, converted. And I was not so good with the paperwork in college. So I would, couldn't find my titer. And they'd say, well, here, get the shot. Your class is starting in two days. Oh, like, goodness. Okay. goodness. So, you know, finally, I have scanned copies of my immunization. So I don't have to get needless vaccines anymore. <laughs> but uh, suffice it to say, I've converted. But I had five MMR shots in my lifetime. Crazy. Why don't we move on to some mitigation um, conversations? Uh, a lot of talk about mitigation strategies, and I know in the church world we've been talking about how do we how do we mitigate best and make people feel safe when they come to church. But just in general, what would you say? What are some mitigation strategies that are realistic and sustainable as we go forward? Uh, things like mask wearing, lockdowns. You know, what's what's your feeling on those things? So here's the conundrum: the number one mitigation strategy for not just COVID but a lot of communicable disease is hand washing. That's mm-hmm. is the number one. So hand washing and sanitization when you cannot get to the actual soap and water of a sink. That's number one. The other thing now becomes, we told people to cough and sneeze in their elbows. That's basically what a mask is. It's like wearing a perpetual elbow on your face so that if you cough and sneeze, you're not projecting it into the air. Now, there, there is a little bit of a false sense of security in wearing these fashion masks, these cloth masks, which the CDC recommends say, hey, it's better than nothing, right? That tends to be the recommendation, better than nothing. Well, okay, but keep in mind that the coronavirus is much smaller than a flu particle. And likely when they tell you the efficacy of a mask is really good, keep in mind that masks were A, surgical grade masks, in an operating room, draft-free zone, people did not have conversations or sing opera in the operating room. Uh, there's not a lot of head movements. Uh, there's not a lot of gaps. People are not touching the mask. So for example, if you're constantly touching the mask, you're bringing stuff to your face, possibly even coronavirus. And now it's staying in the fabric of the mask. So if you're gonna wear a mask, I tell people, treat your mask like underwear. That is to say, change it every day. It needs to be a fresh mask every day. In fact, if you really want to be technical, change your mask after breakfast, change your mask after lunch, and the, because that's when you're out and about, eating with the mask, taking it off, resting it on the table, touching it with the same hand that you touch the doorknob with, all of that is mitigating the effectiveness of the mask. But it does provide a certain psychological benefit to people. Uh, even Dr. Fauci said this back in March when he went on 60 Minutes. He's like, that mask ain't going to do anything for you. In fact, uh, it may make you feel better mentally, but in reality, it's probably not going to keep you from getting the coronavirus. And he's right. It's going to maybe keep you from putting something into the air. So maybe it's an act of social consciousness. Uh, it's the equivalent of being respectful of your neighbor, but 
it's not going to keep you from getting something. If you want to keep from getting something, you're going to need to get an N95, which is easier said than done. N95s have to be specifically fit tested to make sure that no air is getting through. That has a filter in it such that it's protective. The other thing to keep in mind is if you're wearing a mask and you have, say, a beard or any sort of facial hair, uh, you're impeding the seal of the mask. Now, there was no federal directive telling all men to shave the hair off their faces. And yet we sent out people with gaiters, which we turned out were horrible things, it turns out, but they're all the rage still, uh, and, and cloth masks and anything we could make at the home. There's no tight seal there. It is the equivalent of coughing into your elbow perpetually, should you cough or spittle or sneeze or um, anything like that. So that's what the mask benefit is. Lockdowns, obviously, if you're not socializing with anybody, you don't get anything from anybody. That's great if you are an, a lab rat. You are not a lab rat, you're a human being. And so the problem is uh, you have a family, you have friends, you have social obligations, you have a job to get to. Uh, and we've later found out that um, the complications of lockdown psychologically were far worse. Uh, drugs, alcohol, suicide, um, you know, things like that, horrible. Interestingly enough, <laughs> our governor said that 60% of the people testing positive said they were adhering to the lockdown, staying at home. So I don't know what that means either. So I think that on some level, what we are calling a cure of a lockdown is worse than the disease of COVID at this point. I'm not saying have big gatherings and make out with people, but I am saying, you know, we don't have to shake hands as much. You can observe social distancing. If you're sick and symptomatic, you can isolate yourself. Uh, wearing the mask inside for closed situations is not a horrible idea. Um, but realize it's more for uh, keeping you from putting into the air rather than keeping you from contracting from the air. Right. I, and I've heard that. So there, the idea is that essentially you're wearing a mask essentially to protect other people, not necessarily to protect yourself. Right. Now, the other question behind that goes, well, why are we doing that? What's the ethical implication of that? For years and years, we would tell people to take the necessary precautions for their own well-being. Right. So if you were the immunocompromised person, we would say to you, or for example, the neutropenic people, we would say, uh, you're a neutropenic person. We're going to do something called reverse isolation. We've killed your immune system, either therapeutically or it's died on its own for some reason, uh, radiation or bone marrow transplant or something. We would tell that person, you vulnerable person, you wear the gown and the gloves and the mask and the visor. You then can circulate, but you have to wear the protective layers. And then you're the one that needs to isolate from large crowds. And you're the one who doesn't eat the fresh fruits and vegetables and the rare meats. You observe what we call neutropenic precautions. And that's not a bad idea if you think about people assuming individual responsibility for themselves. It's probably more bang for the buck in doing that. Well, let's look beyond this coronavirus pandemic um, to, uh, you know, what we've learned here and how that can apply to future outbreaks, you know? So what, what would you say are some lessons that we could take from, uh, from this and apply it in the future in, in a way that we don't um, seem like we don't know what we're doing at the beginning. Hopefully we, we learned some lessons that can be applied for, uh, for future problems that come our way. I will say it's hard to know. If you don't know what's before you, you don't know what you're doing if we've not had this tried and true. But what I will say is realize I tell my patients, because I do mental health in the home as well, I tell them and I've told them, turn off your television. And I'm not saying that to bury your head in the sand. I'm saying you need to take control of the information that's coming in. You don't need to be in front of every news alert that pops up. Turn off the notifications on your phone. 
Taking your news in a slower source so you can digest it. I have stopped uh, social media and I have stopped, uh, I've cut the cable cord. So I don't get 24 hour news anymore and I don't get the nonsense updates on my social media. I actually now get a real newspaper that I read and I can only read that but so fast. So I can't have too big a panic attack trying to read the newspaper about what's newest and greatest. Mm. You can listen to some options and you can watch, but I would say take control of the input of information. I'll give you an example. Back when we had H1N1 in 2009, there was not nearly the coverage and hysteria around that. And that was a flu virus. And a flu virus kills anywhere from children to geriatrics with no pre-existing conditions. That was highly transmissible. That was a really big deal. That I actually made my pregnant wife, I said, please get this vaccine. I know you're pregnant. It's not tested for the most part, but get it anyway. This is one you want to take the risk to get. Our 10-year-old came out just fine. He's seven feet tall now. But... Um, <laughs> I would say, so that was, that was one that we should, now the reason being, some people say, well, because smartphones weren't in everyone's hands in 2009, or the 24-hour news cycle wasn't as rampant, or Twitter wasn't a thing, or maybe that's right. Maybe that is right. Maybe it's the fact that we are so overloaded with information and sensational information that we are just not able to think critically anymore. It's too much coming at us. We don't have time to slow down and digest. We took a stats course or an epidemiology course as part of high school curriculum where it's in the common uh, knowledge base. It's not. Uh, graphs and information is misrepresented for a host of reasons. Um, I have a friend that's a producer on one of these cable shows. She goes, my job is to fill time between Tide and dog food commercials. That's really what these cable news stations are there to do. They're there to fill time between commercials. That's it. So we're going to say whatever it takes to keep you glued to the chair. Accurate, eh, not so much necessary. Wow. I remember back in 2009, I was going on a mission trip to Puerto Rico and I remember hearing about the swine flu and I didn't even think anything of it. Yep. But you're saying it, it was, it could have been pretty bad, right? It was horrible. So swine flu, we had a hundred thousand hospitalizations in like a six to nine month period. No one heard peep about it. We had 300,000 deaths due to swine flu in 2009. Not a peep. Why? Where was the coverage? I was there. I'm in New York city since 2000. I was there for MERS and SARS and swine flu. And it was the, the, the overload of information was a lot less. And would you say that you would say in your experience that, that SARS, the SARS-CoV-2 is actually not as scary as that? Or maybe that's uh, a bad way of asking it. I don't know. It's more what they say transmissible. So it's more contagious, but in terms of deaths related, it's not nearly as deadly. Hmm. Gotcha. But it's highly more contagious. And so the problem becomes, who is the vulnerable person that we don't know about? I'll tell you one other thing that wasn't big back then was this phenomena of vaping. And I think vaping is the most undernoted risk factor associated with the death rate of the um, coronavirus. I'm surprised that it's not talked about more in the media. And we don't necessarily ask about it in any sort of systematic way. If you just happen to be the person that asks, do you vape or do you smoke marijuana? It's not so much the marijuana or the, it's the fact that you're sucking toxins into your lungs, predisposing you. The hottest story on the news in health news from January to March was this thing called popcorn lung due to vaping. That was everywhere. There was a whole anti-vaping campaign from January till March. But when March hit and COVID upstaged it, we didn't talk about vaping anymore, but people are still doing it. Now they're home and they're probably doing it more because they can. 
So I would say if there's one modifiable risk factor you want to take, quit smoking, quit vaping, because your lungs are pre-damaged. Interesting. Well, you, you kind of touched on this before. Can we, can we talk a little bit about the, uh, some of the ethical implications of the way we're currently approaching these lockdowns? Um, what, are some of the, what are some of the problems with it? So, you know, in healthcare- Or I should we, say, currently approaching the pandemic in general, not just yeah. the lockdowns. In healthcare, we have a, uh, an ethical guiding principle that says, first, do no harm, and then do good. And if you can't do no harm, at least, and if you can't do good, at least do no harm. And I think the problem is we have really good intentions, but the road to hell is clearly paved by good intentions. It made, <laughs> it made laboratory sense to isolate people in their homes for a prolonged period of times. It made laboratory sense to uh, shut down all the businesses. It made laboratory sense to, um, you know, put in these draconian measures because it's all the knowledge we had was lab knowledge. Okay, so fine. So we did that for two weeks and three weeks and four weeks. And the problem with that is the goal needed to be clearly identified. The initial goal of lockdowns was to keep from overwhelming the hospitals. That was the initial goal. That's why we sent the COVID patients into nursing homes. That's why uh, we discharged people. That's why we canceled elective procedures. So now we know that that's a problem. Okay, because now people went with foregoing cancer treatments and open heart surgeries and necessary medical procedures because everyone's deathly afraid to come to hospitals. Even now, the numbers have not rebounded fully with people coming back because we've scared the daylights out of everybody. So that clearly uh, did some harm. We violated our our first ethical principle. And then to do good. And so we said, well, we're going to do good and people will wear masks and people will uh, social distance. Okay, that's helpful to a degree, but we need to drive home the fact that the mask needs to be new and clean and change it like your underwear at a minimum and keep the social distance and wash your hands. But then we also now cause more harm by keeping people isolated. I'll tell you an example. Uh, my private practice picked up a lot because I was one of the few people that could actually go into the home or do telehealth visits. I got called for a 90-year-old man that had dementia, dying end-of-life care. So he died in his home. He was untested. He could have easily been counted as a COVID death, but we couldn't because I didn't test him and he had other reasons to be dying, so we didn't call it a COVID death. His poor wife, though, who uh, would like to go out, socialize, get some social support, unfortunately, her whole family was locked down around the country. So her family could not come around her to offer the moral support mm -hmm. amidst the death of her husband. Her mental health started to decline and deteriorate as well, too. She knows how to cope. She works in the mental health field. I said, what would you normally do or how would you deal with this? And she goes, I would go out. I would talk to friends. I would go to restaurants and museums. I'd like to distract myself with a movie. Uh, and there's nobody here and no one can come see me and there's nothing to do. So what am I going to do? So she starts to tell me how horrible she feels and uh, how suicidal she is and all of this sort of stuff. That's an incidental consequence of what perhaps was a well-intentioned directive. Uh, people aren't going to church. You're a reverend. To put this in the grander scheme, yes. you know I'm a Presbyterian, right? So I'm a Westminster <laughs> Confession of Faith kind of guy. Yes. The first question in the Westminster Confession of Faith, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Exactly right. right. Exactly. That's the whole reason we're here. So if that's the whole reason we're here, how are we doing it? If you look back at the time of the bubonic right. plague, smallpox, through the dawn of time, yes. pandemics are not new. What is new is a 24-hour news cycle and social media. That's what's new.
We had life. Those, those were diseases that were much more deadly than this one. They were, and we had far yeah. less sanitation then than we do now, right. and life went on. In fact, what did the Christians do? The Christians were the founders of hospitals, right. going to the plague, cleaning the bodies, taking care of the sick and dying. That's what we did, right? You wash your hands, you practice some uh, measures of safety. What about when we go to the leper colonies? What are we doing with malaria in the third world? What are we doing with cholera outbreaks in Haiti? Are we avoiding those people? Because that's a good way to not get it. Don't go. Avoid the malaria, the cholera, the smallpox, the mm -hmm, polio. Mm -hmm. Don't go. Social isolate. Social distancing. There you go. We're not wearing a mask. I'll talk to you by video conference. Hey, may the Lord be with you through video, but you can't meet their basic needs. So that is a moral and philosophical discussion that is right. not being had, that I challenge the church and the philosophers uh, to have that discussion. And to have that discussion, especially if you're frail and elderly, with your doctor or your nurse practitioner regarding your goals of care. That means your advanced directive, you know, things like DNR and end of life mm -hmm. care. You know, I tell my own parents, it's like they're in their 70s. My mom, God bless her, came down with cancer this year. Uh, and she said, look, what am I living so long for? What am I trying to do with this cancer treatment? Prolong my life. To do what? To see you and my grandkids. You think I'm going to sit here locked down? Why would I do that? So that's a personal decision, and we should not be superimposing a group think on individual liberties and uh, compromising people's um, religious convictions and worldviews. That's a bigger conversation that needs to be had, and it's sorely missing from the current discourse regarding pandemic mm -hmm. uh, response. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a good word. I think a good challenging word for us. Um, maybe as we wrap up here, la one last question for you is what, you know, what should, I guess you kind of hit on this before, but just what should we have done differently that can be applied for the next one? So you, you started, you started to hit a bit on that. Is there like kind of a way to wrap that up in a, in a bite-sized piece for our listeners as well? Yeah, as general infection off? control. Maintain proper nutrition and hydration. Get some exercise. Attend to your pre-morbid, comorbid conditions. If your diabetes is out of control, get it controlled. If you're 40 pounds overweight, lose the 40 pounds. That should be motivation enough to help you build physiologic resilience to the next one or to the one that might be going on that we just don't know about right now. This is the one we happen to be currently focused on. So basic hygiene, uh, hand washing, uh, taking care of your comorbid conditions, uh, exercising good judgment. So one of the blessings of the COVID-19 is that now, if you so much as sniffle at work, take a week off, right? You can't so much as hiccup, sniffle, cough, sneeze at work. Yep. Get out, you know, right? So, so much for doing presenteeism and working through it. Maybe sick days aren't such a bad thing. Yeah, people malinger and abuse them and whatever. But if you're sick, have a communicable disease, stay home, avoid the circulation, learn to say no, exercise your boundaries. Now you have a reason to do it. I might be COVID, stay home. Right. Uh, but don't lock down, keep living your life. Well, I think on that note, that would be a good way for us to end here. And uh, Ray, thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Raymond Zakari. Um, uh, I'll put some of this, uh, uh, some of these um, uh, resources within the show notes. Uh, I know you sent me one. There's a couple other things we're going to mention on there. And I, hopefully this was a really informative and edifying conversation for those of you listening out there. Um, Ray, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. Thanks for having awesome. me. Awesome. All right. And for those of you listening, we hope to see you next time on the Underground Sessions podcast. Thanks for listening to the Underground Sessions podcast, where we have courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. 
If you enjoyed what you heard today, share our information with your friends. And please give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store or wherever you're listening to podcasts so others can find us. You can also connect with us at www.millingtonbaptist.org, where our vision as a church is to see the table expanded for the glory of God as more and more people step into a life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope to see you next time on the Underground Sessions podcast.